about this idea called Hisbainanus. And we're going to be spending more time talking about it. And I said that I wanted to move a little bit outside the text of the beginning of today's class because there are two approaches in the Chabad tradition as how to go about doing this. And I thought it would be helpful to talk about that. But before I do that, I want to first preface something. Actually, I want to preface two things. Number one, a classroom is not a good place to get specific guidance on what to do in life. Does that make sense, or do you need to explain that? It makes sense. Okay. So therefore, I am describing things in a way that I hope everybody can understand, but I am not giving guidance as what you should or should not do. If you're unsure what you should or should not do in any of these matters, you should consult somebody one-on-one because everybody's situation is different. And even if something is a very good thing, it may not be a good thing for you and may not be a good thing for you now. Um, and a person needs to know where to put their focus and efforts on. Okay? So that's one. Two. Okay? What we're going to talk about is hard. Okay? And it's hard for two reasons. One, it takes effort. And people like things that are quick, they're easy, they're instant fixes, there's, you know, your, what is it, three-step program to accomplish, blah, blah, blah. And that's not this. I mean, nothing in times like that, Tanya says that it's, it's, it's a long, short route. Um, that's, so, it, it, it's just, there's a difficulty with tires, requires effort and consistency. But there's another issue, is that these things require preparation. Okay. I'm going to speak about one kind of preparation and only one kind of preparation today. There's lots of things that, um, just to give you an analogy, um, one of the reasons why I can't play piano is you don't own one. There's no piano here, right? But there's one here. Now, in this case, it's simple, so I should go get go upstairs to the piano, right? Okay. But if I insisted that the piano has to be played here for some strange reason, that would be actually a lot more difficult because I'd have to bring the piano here, and that's harder. Okay. So there are prerequisites to things. Sometimes we ignore the prerequisites, and then we're surprised why we're not succeeding in accomplishing anything. Okay. I want to speak about only one prerequisite, although there could be many prerequisites that enable a person to do this this thing effectively. Okay. And that prerequisite is being well-educated. Now... What is the definition of well-educated for our purposes? Well-educated means that you know things that you have learned and you retain them clearly and your level of, of understanding and knowledge and breadth of knowledge is commensurate with, um, for lack of words, your intellectual level. Meaning, if you are the kind of person who um, school was hard, intellectually hard, I don't mean like socially hard, right? It was just, it's hard, you know, math was hard and chemistry was hard and writing was hard and all those things were hard, okay? It was required a lot of effort to get through basic classes um, at a passing level. Then the level of breadth and depth necessary for your prerequisites to do this is lower than somebody who's 
you know, acing a PhD program in some like you know neuroscience or something. The Rebbe gives an analogy, which is that the pressure of water in a container is determined by how high the container is, not by the amount of water. If a very tall container is very thin, it doesn't contain a lot of water, but it will exert the same pressure at the bottom as a wide container that's filled to the top. So the idea is whatever your container is, whatever your level of being able to absorb and retain clearly a breadth and depth of information is irrelevant, but you do have to have a body of... Um, information, a body of, of, of learning accessible to you commensurate with what your intellectual acumen is. If you don't, then this doesn't work. Which strangely means, this is somewhat counterintuitive, that people that learn quickly and retain things quickly and understand things easily actually have a harder time doing this so-called intellectual activity than people that find learning and retaining things more difficult. Because to get through the prerequisite stage actually takes a lot more. So I have a friend, for instance, who's a wonderful person, but you guys know I tend to be blunt, right? So he's not the smartest person in the world, okay? Um, he, he finds learning things very, very difficult. Um, he's actually able to do a lot more of this stuff simply because he can max out like his ability to retain and hold information on a subject very, very quickly because it's just at a certain point, it's just literally overwhelming and beyond it. So the idea is filling your prerequisites to have a full container b before you get started. Now, it's, to be fair, it's not like a black and white thing that it's either you have a full container or you don't, and if you don't, you can't do anything. It's much more like it's to the degree. To the degree to which you have a full container is the degree to which you'll be, get, make progress in this, and the degree to which your container is empty is the degree to which it won't really work very well. Okay? Um, now, what is it? I'm going to explain what that means. So let's say, let's say, um, let's say, um, you, you can, well, let's say you, you know a lot and understand it very well, um, let's say um, art history yeah like really like you go to an art museum and you could really like be a tour guide in an art museum just off of like what you have stored in your right well what does that say about your ability to learn and retain and contextualize and have all those things that recall it's quite broad right okay. now I might not be able to do that, but that probably is not because of an issue on that. It's just I'm not interested in art history. Okay. But then there are people that, you know, once you move too far beyond the pragmatic or the practical, the tangible, it becomes more and more difficult. And people exist on a range of this. Okay. So now here's the question. If you pick the thing that you're most interested in, you're most engaged with, to learn about, to understand, to contextualize, that you have quick recall of all sorts of interesting tidbits and how it all fits together, okay? And then you take your knowledge about, for lack of words, we'll call this godliness. Is it on the same level as that? Is it commensurate with that? Is it equivalent to that? Or is it far, far, far less? And the, the greater that disparity is, the more difficult the hisbainus is going to be, regardless of which method you use. And the reason is because the human mind works. Um, the human mind works 
by a lot of things that are done unconsciously. So if I, if I ask you a question about a topic that you know nothing about and I say give me an answer, you're likely to get it wrong. Not because you don't know the answer, because you don't even know to, how to eliminate wrong answers. You don't even know the direction to start answering the question. But if it's a topic you're very familiar with, so your unconscious mind is already guiding you as to what, what's plausible, what's implausible, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, and so you can have what people call an educated guess that's worthy of consideration. Even if the guess turns out to be wrong, there's usually some truth in it. Okay, I apologize. I thought I'd turn this off. So, um, so when you're in, when you, so the, 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 the broader of a knowledge base you have relative to your own capacity, the easier time that's going to be. Um, which means that person's like, okay, now I want to start doing his business. And the question is, okay, well, what's your knowledge base? And if your knowledge base is very small relative to what your knowledge base could be, and you can tell that based on the topics that you're most interested in in life, then what should you do be, if you want to be serious about this? Should you jump into trying to achieve high levels of awareness of things through this explaining this process? Or should you try and broaden your knowledge base? Which one would be a more appropriate thing to do? The latter. The latter. Does that mean you can't do any hisbaninus at all ever? No, it doesn't mean that. Okay? So this is, this, is, this is one of those things that makes it difficult because people tend to like, to, I don't know, I like cooking. You like cooking? I like cooking. It's a favorite activity of mine. Um, one of the problems with cooking is that cooking involves grocery shopping. I hate grocery shopping. It is on my lowest, it's on the lowest of activities that I regularly do that I, I just can't stand grocery shopping. But if there's no grocery shopping taking place, Cooking can't happen, yeah? Now, with grocery shopping, in theory, someone else can grocery shop for you, right? Okay. But some things don't work like that, and this is one of the things. A knowledge base to work off of has to be your own, not someone else's. Right? This is why I find it slightly funny when people say, oh, I remember this, we learned this, and they look in their notebook. Right? Well, what does that mean if it's in your, if you look in your, and I'm not criticizing this as like, it's a bad thing to have things in a notebook, but if you have to look something up in your notebook, what does that mean? It's not there for your mind to recall. And so if you're doing an activity purely with your mind, how does, it doesn't help that it's in your notebook. It doesn't mean writing things down in notebooks are bad. Many people do. The previous rabbi wrote everything down in a notebook. In fact, the act of writing things down may help entrench it in your mind. But at the end of the day, retaining a broad knowledge base, and again, it doesn't have to be measured against someone else. It's measured against your own capacity. Is a prerequisite to really allow your mind to fully engage in this process. Okay? Which means that a prerequisite to his is learning. Learning not in a way that you cover ground and you've turned pages, but learning in a way that you know what you learned, you've retained what you've learned, you can recall what you've learned, and therefore apply it as new things come along. Okay? Now, Okay, there are, two con there are two ways to do this as and we're going to continue with our piano analogy. That was the preface? That was the preface. That was the preface. Okay? Now, let us assume that someone is capable of playing piano. Okay? 
So let's assume we've got that. They have a piano and they're capable of playing with it, which is already an accomplishment, right? Now, is it better for them to play music that they're composing themselves as they are playing? Or is it better for them to play a piece that was already composed by another person? It depends on your goal. It depends on many factors, right? So let's break that apart. In what ways would we say that it's better for the person to play their own piece that they're composing as they're playing? It's more creative. What else? What? So why is that better? Oh, the goal is to make a new piece of music. Okay, let's assume that's not the goal because that's not going to tie back to his brightness. The idea of the, the, if your goal is to come up with something novel, then, then, then yeah, that's a different discussion. Then, then, then your mental activity is geared towards, towards um, achievement rather than, a, rather than comprehension or awareness. So let's, let's not do that. The goal, the, the, also, if, if, they're, if they're composing their own piece of music as they're playing, why would that be better? It's more creative. What else? Yeah. Why is it better? What if they're just really, what if they're really bad at composing? Okay, so let's split those two things apart, okay? One is that they're more invested in it, right? The other is that they have kind of like um, authority over it. Those are, those are connected, but they're not the same thing. And, and we're, um, when we get to this brain, I'll, I'll split that apart. Okay, so there's more creativity. You're more invested. Um, does the piece gonna flow as smoothly? Probably not. And if we take an average person, right, an average decent piano player, I mean, not me, right, the music is not going to be as, we'll use the word beautiful, um, as if they were playing a standard you know, piece of composed music that most people play. There's a reason why those pieces of music tend to get popularized, is because those tend to be the upper end of whatever people have produced over, over the generations. And so, unless you're some sort of an exceptional person, your piece of music probably is not going to top that. It could, but chances are against that. Now, if on the other hand you're playing a, a composed piece of music, even if you're a relatively mediocre piano player, you can play amazing music, right? Uh, it doesn't require as much creativity on your part, although speaking to musicians does require some creativity because any piece of music does need to be interpreted on some level as it's played. Um, I don't play instruments, but I know many people that do, and so they tell me. And I've heard the same piece of music played by different people, and it sounds different, so. I have reason to think they're telling me the truth. Um, what else is true? What 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 else is true if you're if you're playing it, um, the piece of music? You're kind of constrained, right? I mean, the music is what the music is. Okay. Now, I think we all appreciate that this is a somewhat of a false dichotomy. You could take a piece of music and then like make some changes on your own, right? But for our right now, just to show there's two different ways of doing it, we're gonna we're gonna keep them as if it's one or the other. Okay. So now, the second Chabad Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe's son, the son of the author of the Tanya, 
the way that he tended to instruct the chassidim and how to do this, his brain, this process, was basically like composing music as you're playing it. And the, what you would do is you would start with your experience of reality. And you would reflect on your experience of reality until you came to a concrete awareness of the greatness of God. Now, I, I think you guys have heard the idea that there's different spiritual worlds and different spiritual levels. So the idea is that you would go through all of that on your own, in your own mind. So to give you an analogy, um, you, you remember learning in algebra, there was all these formulas that you have to learn and remember how they work in order to pass? Okay. And you know there's, there's like always a few kids in the class that want to know why that's the formula? Like, right? and, and then what's the teacher's response? It just is. And then there's a, there's a few kids that are really unsatisfied with that? Okay. So some of those kids, they like go do research and figure it out, or they wait until they get to a class that doesn't answer. But occasionally, rarely, you know what you have? You have such a person who says, well, I mean, if this is really the way it works, someone figured it out, right? Well, if someone figured it out, that means I could figure it out. So they start playing around with the problem until they can derive why that's the way it works on its own, on their own. Okay? Now, that's a much messier process. And those people tend to have a, a lot more acumen, so math and mathematics and music and music. So if you're gonna start off with just your experiences of life and somehow through your own process of reflection arrive in an awareness of the four worlds, the four spiritual worlds, the 10 spheros and how they all work and ultimately come to understanding of the greatness of God, tra tracing that all through on your own, um, that's very difficult. It's very challenging. And it's very, and for most people, it's something that um, they can't do very well. So even though in Chassid something says, you think about this, um, you, you think about the greatness of God, not everybody can really go through um, thinking about their experiences and moving into thinking about, and moving into deriving from the greatness of God. What many people can do, and I want to be clear about this, is something else. Many people can think about the world and how great the world is and how amazing the world is and then just tack on the end of that that God made all of it. But then are you thinking about the greatness of God or are you thinking about the greatness of what he made? Of what he made. Okay? And I like to use an analogy to illustrate this. Um, I, I mean, I don't drink this anymore because the doctor home is bad for me, but Coca-Cola, I really like Coca-Cola. Um, what is my opinion of the person who invented Coca-Cola? In fact, let's take a guess. Do you think I know the name of the person who invented Coca-Cola? No. No, I don't. I did, I just forgot because it wasn't that important to me. So, I mean, Coca-Cola is great, and the person who made Coca-Cola? I, I really think he's great. I mean, I, I, I guess, like I, mean, I like his product, right? Like, th that now for means like I have some sort of, 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 of specific feelings towards him or appreciation of him. There's something, the product is not the same thing as the maker of the products. And that's an issue we're gonna to get to a little bit later in the chapter. It is true, everybody can go outside and look at you know, a beautiful sunset and say, this is amazing, and really reflect on how amazing it is. 
And then their mind can go, and whoever made this is like awesome. But where is most of the expansive really thinking and pondering? Is it directed at the maker of the sunset or the sunset? The sunset. The question is, how do you shift that to, okay, well then what's the maker like? How do you shift, how do you shift from thinking about the sunset to thinking about the maker? And how do you, and, and, the, and the idea is that there's many layers and levels of godliness, there's many layers, so to speak, of the maker. How do you work through all of that on your own and unguided? And the answer is, if you are very well educated, and you are very dedicated, and you are really good at something that's called an English metacognition, which is thinking about how to think about a certain thing, right? You know which mental tools you to employ in your mind at what point, you could do it. But there's an element of like freestyling it, and many people find that incredibly difficult. So much so that the Chassidim already in the earliest generations of, of Chabad complained that this is something that very few people are really being successful at. Just like very few people are very, really successful, even thinking about the piano, of making up as they're playing an amazing piece of music. Yeah. Um, they're contemplating on the four worlds and the spirit. Aren't those also creations of God? I don't want to get into the technicalities of it. That's part of the issue. Is that if you're, the, the 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 concepts you, we have right right now are just too binary. That's part of the issue. Okay. So I am heavily discouraging anybody who wants to take anything that it says in Chabad Chassidus about his Bainos seriously of doing it that way. There's a different way, which is the way that the third Chabad Rebbe, the, the altar of his grandson, um, tended to educate the Chassidim to do. And this way is much more effective. In other words, it's more, and it, 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 it's broader reaching, and for most people achieves more. But it does require you to... Um, come to terms with your own limitations, which is instead of the person um, trying to contemplate based on their own experiences and then hope they, they, they actually shift to, to, to really contemplating God, is that you take the teachings um, as a guide for contemplation. And that I want to talk more about what that looks like. In other words, um, you, I'm sure everyone has heard the idea of something called a Hasidic discourse. What is the purpose of a Hasidic discourse? No. Although it does that, and that's cool. It's actually a guided contemplation. Okay. And so instead of extracting the ideas and then filing in your mind for future freestyling contemplation like the first method, this idea is that you actually use a discourse itself as a guided contemplation. Okay, now, what does that actually look like? Hmm. Well, here's the annoying first step. You need to know the discourse. <laughs> you can't contemplate on the discourse in your mind if the discourse isn't in your mind. So what does that mean? You need to learn the discourse by heart. That's step one. Does it mean you have to know it word for word by heart? No. 
I mean, if you're good at that, that's great. But there's a, but it does mean that the idea, in other words, the ideas are being presented, the questions and answers, all those things are actually should be viewed much more like a a work of art than a lesson plan. This is actually important because in a Hasidic discourse, many times the the continuity or why you jump from one day to the next is not apparently obvious when you're actually teaching it. Okay. Um, in other words, if, if you were to, um, if you look at a painting, a very beautiful painting, or listen to a really good piece of music, how all the different parts fit together um, and bring out a different experience is, is part of the appreciation of the art, or appreciation of the music. If you just listen to one little, you know, a few little notes, or look at one little part of the canvas, you don't really appreciate you know, what's there and why it's there. Um, and, and this happens many times in the discourse. It seems to sometimes jump from one thing to the next. It seems to leave something unanswered. And the idea is that when you're seeing it just as a, like a, a, a text to teach ideas, it does seem a little bit weird the way it's constructed. But it really is not constructed meant to be, it's really the real ultimate purpose of them is that a person should use them as guided contemplation. What that means is, is that they contemplate on the discourse as in the structure of the discourse. Now, many people would often write letters to the Rebbe to say, like, how do I do this? And the Rebbe would say, first and foremost, this is very individualized. What works for one person doesn't exactly work for another person, so you should get personal guidance. But there are a few general things that the Hasidic mentors throughout the generations have said, and so I want to give you some of those general things. Okay. That's what so, no, for contemplating discourse. Okay. So the idea is like this. The, um, the ideas are presented in a certain order, and not just as a series of ideas, but also they're linked together in terms of questions, whether explicit or implicit questions, resolutions, supports, refutations, re re revising something. Okay? In other words, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a flow and train of thought rather than just a final product. Um, right? So a discourse will start off with saying something, we'll have a question, then we'll have an answer, we'll revise the answer, the answer problematically contradicts this. There's, there's this development of things. Sometimes things shift in unexpected ways. And the, the idea is that the person should have all of that flow memorized. It can be memorized in their own words, but memorized. And then the idea is that you're supposed to contemplate that step by step. Now what does it mean to contemplate it step by step? So a, a useful device that works for many people. Many people doesn't mean it does not work for okay. all people. But because this is a class, I'm going to teach a device that works for many people. Is that what you do is that you imagine as follows. You imagine that you had a person who had the following characteristics. They were very curious, very intelligent, okay? um, open-minded, but rigorous. For some people, it's even helpful to, if you know a person in your life like that. Like I had once a Bach whose father was like that, so I said that you, know, you can imagine your father, that'll, you know. But if you can, don't, it sometimes helps to think of a specific person. But, or just make, but imagine you had a person like that, and imagine you were, had to now explain point by point the discourse. But you do this all mentally. So not writing it out, just, so you start, you bring up the first point in your mind, and you try and explain it. And then you imagine, like, what would, what would their follow-up questions be and how would I answer that? And when, you know, there's a certain level of resolution that you move on to the next point. 
right? And inevitably, your mind is going to wander onto other topics. And when that happens, what do you do? You simply, without reacting or paying attention, you should move your mind back onto what you were doing. And you keep doing that until you can do that for five minutes uninterrupted. So that you could, you're, you're doing that in your mind for five minutes without even realizing five minutes have gone by. When you master that, then you try to do it for 10 minutes. Okay. Now, there's layers and levels of beyond, of beyond that. I'm just gonna add one other one, um, which is that once you've kind of gone all through that in your mind, you then start, you then have the person start asking how this all fits together. What's the, what's the, you know, like in a piece of, like in a piece of artwork, there's not just the image and its beauty, but there's often a message, there's often an emotion behind it, there's often some sort of, right, the same thing with, with music, the same thing with sculpture. Then the question shifts to not how to understand each step along the flow of thought, but what is this saying in its entirety? Okay? And then you shift that question to what is this saying in its entirety as it pertains to the reality that I live in? Okay? And the idea is that, that doing all of that um, without letting your mind wander off, and if your mind does wander off, then without reacting to that, just moving it back on. Yeah. People that practice this can get very good at this. Okay? There are people that can get so good they can do this for 10 minutes at a time, 15 minutes at a time, 20 minutes at a time, 30 minutes at a time. 30 minutes at a time is extremely impressive. But what, you, what hopefully you can see from this is that in order to do this, you have to be work, this requires you're working within a very specific structure, structure of a discourse. Now, obviously your ability to explain it satisfactorily to this imaginary person depends on your, what, your the knowledge base you have to call on to resolve issues, to, to, to flesh things out. An important part of this is coming up with satisfactory analogies, analogies that really capture the idea without distorting it. Um, and so there's an element of creativity in here but it is within that structure. At the end of the day, that a person does that with a specific, um, with a specific discourse or part of a discourse, depending on what the you know what, what the limitations are. They're, they're a their um, perception of the discourse and the perception of reality is going to change in ways that we're going to outline as we'll describe later on in this chapter. Okay, now. One important thing about this process is this is process, um, it's not, if I had to pick one word, is it's not inspiring, okay? In fact, um, someone, someone, a very famous rabbi, actually, was, I, was, I, was, I learned in Kolo, Kolo's yeshiva for married people, I learned in Kolo with him, and he came to the, uh, came to the rabbi in a private audience, and he asked the rabbi, he said, I do this whole process, and I find that I'm much more inspired in my davening if I just, you know, sing the davening rather than do this whole process. And the Rebbe's response was that the importance of cultivating the right mindset is, is, is the most important thing. And what he took from this is that the, most, the right mindset is not always the most uplifting or inspiring mindset, as we're going to see later on in the chapter. It's the one that's the most transformative. Um, and so this idea of contemplating, and if you want to call it meditation, you want to call it reflecting, I don't really care the words you use, 
But this is the, the this second approach where a person actually uses a Hasidic discourse or even a chapter of Tanya as a as a guided reflection rather than just simply a text to learn ideas. Um, that's you know the the, the, the the more surefire way. It's like again, if you're playing piano and you want to actually produce a beautiful piece of music, your more surefire way is to take you know some music that was well written and learn to play it. And as you learn to play, will it sound exactly like someone else's version of that music? Or even every time you play it, will it be the same? Come out the same for you? No. Um, and part of this process then is often actually sticking to the same piece. And you become intimately familiar with it and you start to, um, it, that there's some sort of uh, a deeper awareness that becomes imprinted upon your mind and affects you as we're gonna learn that. Um, in ways that you wouldn't expect initially. Okay. So that that's what we mean by that's what we mean by his spiderness. Yeah. Doesn't a good teacher have to do this in order to like explain? Yes. 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 The problem is that when the teacher is doing it to another person, all it does is help educate and inform the person. It doesn't have this no, trans- for themselves. Oh, very good. Right. In other words, in other words, that someone who's so, one of one of the one of the one of the best ways to actually um, force yourself to do this process is to take educating someone else seriously. Okay? But there are limits. Because when you're, when you're educating someone else, then there's a limit to how much you have to do that in order to um, engage them, or how much you're willing to do that. Okay? Um, now again, th- this particular description of exa- how to do it and using that method of imagining explaining it to someone else, um, who is open-minded but rigorous, that's a method that works for many people, um, but, there, but it doesn't work for any, everybody. And when a person really tries to do this stuff seriously, um, they will often find many little bumps along the way. Just like learning to play piano, you might find that you, know, you have a problem that you, know, you move these two fingers in sync and you just need to practice separating the fingers. So there's all sorts of little problems, quirks of your mind that you can learn along the way as you try to do this that you might have to take care of. Um, one common one is the ability to think through a train of thought that's not your own. Many people find that very awkward and distracting. And so one, um, I'm not just recommending this as a solution, but, but um, one thing that happened to, to certain yeshiva students is that they would tell certain yeshiva students, before you start contemplating God and a Hasidic discourse, practice it with a, with a section of the Talmud. Where the, where the concepts are more concrete. Uh, sometimes you need to practice a, you know, practice a skill before you actually apply the skill. Um, sometimes a person might need, you know, if you're talking about, this is not relevant to this age group, but if you're talking about people who are really young and are interested in learning how to do this, there's actually a step that works better for younger people. Again, majority is actually thinking through just the wording itself. Because we're talking about ages, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16. Like the younger one. It's just literally getting your mind to think through word by word without the explaining part. And you get older people that usually tends to be extremely frustrating for most older people. But for younger people, the free thinking tends to be. But these are, these are things that you can only speak about in generalities until you actually have a dialogue with the person and, and practice things for yourself. But what it is not, I want to be very clear, the idea that you're just supposed to close your eyes and imagine what something is like or imagine the greatness of God that is not at all what this is. In fact, the altar of himself has a discourse explaining the difference between that kind of imagining what spirituality is like versus his
I mean, it describes like the internally what, what, what it feels like, the differences and the effects. Okay. So if anybody is actually really wants to know what this is, I would more recommend doing the more structured one as a general rule. But again, I'm not telling anybody what they should or shouldn't do because you have to know someone much better. So that, I wanted just to flesh out a little more when it, when, when go on to say um, that when we say the deeply contemplated sees Ms. Bainan, what exactly are we talking about? Yeah. So you only actually mentioned God in the first method, but I assume that you meant that you're doing this whole process for the second until it changes your perception of reality, that you recognize God? Well, see, because when you're, if you're using a Hasidic discourse, a Hasidic discourse is overtly what is the subject matter. So it's not you're trying to transform your, your regular in, innate experience of reality into something else. You are sticking yourself into someone else's train of thought. If you want to think about it like this, there's a difference between looking at a piece of art and looking at the real world. Um, art is usually art is usually inspired by the real world. The artists experience the real world. They translate that experience into some way to convey that through a medium, whether it's music, whether it's sculpture, right? And when you go and look at the artwork, assuming you're sensitive, you get a hopefully a kind of sense of the world from a very unique perspective. It is much easier to appreciate art that is already made than it is to make your own art from scratch. Because to make your own art from scratch, you have to transform the mundane experience of the world into something else. But the artist has already done that for you, so you just need to kind of jump into their shoes. Same thing with playing a piece of music. So the second method is, so to speak, the, 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 the author of the discourse has already done that step for you. The difficulty is, is that it's, it's, you, you have to engage in someone else's train of thought. And that requires a certain, that requires a little more recognition of your own limitations and humility. And kind of relinquishing of control of how you're going to use your mind. So there's a trade-off there. And you said that the first method is better for those who are educated and dedicated. Who's the second? Is the second is better for everyone else? Yeah. I don't, by the way, I, what I'm telling you now is that those two methods historically, I do not know of anybody in generations who has really done the first method successfully. I know, I know of people who the second method has eventually incorporated elements of the first method that you start, as you start elaborating and developing and using a discourse as, as, as a guide to contemplation, you start adding elements from another discourse, start building a deeper understanding that's creatively your own. But working literally from scratch, like in the first method, um, it seems that that's, you know, it's recorded on paper, but I don't know if it's a living tradition that people have, because it's extremely, extremely difficult. Um, I can't say that for certain, I'm just saying people that I know of, people that have read about how they did it when they described in the past few generations have all been the second method and then building on that. Okay. Well, Which what? What? I'm not talking, what the Rebbe's did personally, like they didn't, like I don't know what they were doing personally. I'm talking about Mishpim, they describe what they did. And they educated people, so that's what they did. Um, which means that, yeah, there's, there's, at the very minimum level of doing this, there is, the, you know, the, the dedication. I'm going to know this little bit of text really well. Okay. That, is, that is part of the, you know, that is, that is the prerequisite. And the more perspective and background you have relative to your mental abilities, the more you're going to be able to do with your Hispanics. So, yeah. It's not... Now, I do want to be clear. You can take many ideas that we learn 
and you can present them in inspiring ways and inspire people, right? Is that a bad thing? No, but are you going to get the results that the rest of the chapter is going to describe doing that? No, you're going to get other stuff. So it's not that those things are bad. I don't mind one to do that. I just want to be clear. When he describes this process of contemplation of his brainness and what it leads to, right, if, you, if, if, you, you know, if you follow the recipe for chocolate cake, don't expect, don't expect to get a challenge, right? It doesn't, you know. Yes? Um, so this is generally, yes, yeah, yeah, right, so, so, so this is, this, no, 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 so, so you, so, so, um, to use, to use a topic that you're familiar with, if you get a piece of Gemara, and you give it to someone that's never learned Gemara, even if they have no, perfectly speak Aramaic and Hebrew, right, and tell them, okay, explain what this means, they're gonna botch it pretty badly. Because they have no larger context, like you tend to need to know other things that Gamar speaks about in other places and to put things in perspective. This is why you need a teacher at the beginning. Right? In other words, if you wanna really do this, you wanna take a text that you had a teacher teach you because they do a lot of that giving you um, a breadth of knowledge. Now eventually, as you do, you get to the point that you less and less need a teacher because you start developing enough of a, a breadth that you look at something, you can kind of figure out what's going on on your own. Um, so, like if someone is really serious about this type of stuff, it's not just that you want to like learn a text and know that text well, you ideally want to find someone who themselves can really explain that text to you and point out what are you missing, what, what's really going on, to put it in its proper perspective. You do that enough times, then you start having that perspective for a, a new thing. And then it builds on itself. The idea is that this is not, a, this is not really something you can do without a teacher. So the first knowledge base, does that also come, does that come from having a teacher walk one through one of the guided contemplations? Right, yeah. So it is somewhat circular. Right. I mean, kind of like the, the math equations, and then right. this is kind of, right. the guided contemplations like the, right. the equations, and there are some people out there who are going to come to the other one, this is right. the first one. Right, right. At which base it which that's right and ev and eventually get into independence and it it, it it literally works the same way as learning Gemara and that um, or learning halacha and Alter again we didn't learn this inside but he explicitly says in his introduction to Tanya you need a living teacher and um, this was historically the mo one of the most important parts of the Chabad tradition which is that that a person needs to be taught chassidus initially by some living person because, there's, because you, need to, you need to have that broad knowledge base even make sense of one little bit. Eventually, you have enough of a broad knowledge base that you encounter something else and you can make sense of that on your own and then you know, at a certain point you, you, know, you, you graduate from the diapers. Yes? Besides just describing the characteristics of a person like educated or dedicated or willing to accept their limitations, are there actual types of people that mm. you would... No. no. Not like head or feet or anything like that? No. no. Yes? So, taking the analogy, um, in the same way that in order to learn algebra, you have to know like, simple math, like, what are the prerequisites of like Jewish texts that you need well, it depends your teacher. So if you have a good teacher, 
and you live in, in you know, the generation of the Rebbe's shluchim, then zero, because then um, the attitude is that the teacher's going to provide everything all the way down from the beginning, if you're serious. Um, and that's what happens in a lot of Chabad houses with serious students. Actually, I know some people like this who like came to Chabad house, they weren't even religious, they, they, they could barely tell you, you know, the, his, the story in the Chumash, and you know, they, you can learn Hasidic text and explain, it's, just, it's more slow. And obviously, so, so that really depends on the teacher. The more the teacher is willing to, you know, take a step back and take a step back and take a step back to bring you along, then in principle you can start with zero. Um, there are certain things, though, that as a mindset, um, and this goes back to the Chachma thing, is that the guided contemplations all take for granted that the Torah is true, all take for granted that everything is true already, and then the question is how to really come to understand it and appreciate it. So if a person insists on adopting a mindset of, of looking for something to justify and prove, there's always going to be a clash. So that's not so much a knowledge mindset, but an attitude. The knowledge prerequisite is an attitude prerequisite. In other words, you can't contemplate, use the discourse as a guide to contemplation at the same time you're having a, 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 a skeptical prove-it-to-me attitude towards the content of that. And that's, that, that, you know, that, that's a personal issue. Now, what you could do, and there are people who do this, so I'm going to just set that aside and, and, and not resolve it, but I'll set it aside and, and see where this leads me. Is a, um, there was a, a guy who was involved in, in Christianity and then got out of Christianity and was looking more into Judaism in Israel. And if someone had the bright idea to ship him off to the Chabad Yeshiva in Kfar Chabad, um, which is not a yeshiva for, for Baal Shuvas, but he's an Israeli, he speaks Hebrew, so it's not like the end of the world. I mean, like, texts are not completely closed to him. And um, he joined the yeshiva, and it's like, you know, okay, I'm exploring Judaism. If this is some Jewish stuff, let me explore that. And they were learning a, a series, that year they were learning a series of Hasidic discourses um, that deal with, you see that Kabbalah chart that I keep making fun of? See the top thing, Kesser? So they were learning about stuff that goes above the Kesser thing on that chart. <laughs> like very abstract theological stuff. Um, and he, at the beginning he had all these like questions about Judaism and Christianity and like, you know, and, 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 and the teacher was just like not at all responding to his questions at all. And at some point he decided he's going like to put his questions aside and learn the stuff. Anyway, at the end of the year, the teacher said, well, what, do you have any answers to your questions? And his response was, well, I no longer have those questions. In other words, not that I had my questions answered, but by being involved in this and thinking this through and doing these, these, these reflective practices, my mindset has been radically altered, and so the things that were previously bothering me don't bother me. Now I'm bothered by different things. Um, but again, th this is where the issues of like, the, the individual human being come into play. Like Every person is unique, and how you go about doing that, and are you comfortable doing it, and are you motivated, that, that, that's not, you know, there's no like, guidebook to that. Yes? And the Bina. Because, because, because I mentioned that, I don't want to explain why that is, because that requires like a lot more. They're both, they're both into Chachamina, because both of them involve using your Bina. They're both involved in analyzing, synthesizing, analogizing, etc. And both of them involve Chacham, because you have to have this openness and devotion and clarity as to what you're actually getting at. And, if, and those two things are kind of pulling in the same direction. That's all I meant. Um, it's not just exploring another idea, another being open, open to a new thing and a new thing and a new thing. And it's not just engaging in mental gymnastics for the sake of mental gymnastics. It's 
there is something that I don't yet fully grasp, I don't yet fully appreciate, and I'm trying to come to appreciate, and these are two ways to go about doing that. Okay, and those are, those, and that, that act of doing that is, is bringing these two faculties together. Okay. All right. Yes. No, because the fact that you have that the fact that you have to retain someone else's presentation of ideas in your head is a tremendous use of your chachma. Think about that. Right? The fact that I'm I'm turning my I'm letting somebody else redesign my mind. Right? That that's a pretty much that's a very be, that's being very open-minded and very willing to to to, to suspend. Right? There's a relinquishing of control there. Yeah. That's that that fact. That's why some people are resistant to doing it. Okay, fine. Um, okay. So, I, again, I just wanted to make that, and it's just we didn't just do it. What a person thinks and then move on is if we all know what, that, what, I, what you know, we mean by that. In Chabad tradition, that's what that means. Are, is, I just want to be clear, even though, are there other traditions in Judaism as to how to go about doing stuff? There are. Um, you cannot get, this is one other important thing I want to you cannot get, I feel very strongly about this, you cannot get an honest rendition of different ways of doing things from people that don't really practice them. So I can, or the best I can do if you ask me about, so like say Breslov, is what does Lubavitcher think of Breslov? And if you were to ask me about um, the, 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 the techniques of arousing your soul in, in Karlin Chassidus, the best you would get is what is a Chabad person who understands Chabad and practices Chabad and tries to live life according to that tradition? How do they understand what is going on in Karlin? Okay? Which kind of means an annoying thing is the only way to really understand how any particular one of these things works is to do it. And because, and this is where I think respect is very important to realize, that most of these traditions all have an element that you can use something to inspire and on that level they're kind of all the same. It was like an inspiring idea to get you to do a good thing. It's like all the same. Whatever inspires you, inspires you. But once you start moving to these more dedicated practices, they're very different. And the only way to really appreciate what each one is doing is to do that one, but they have a, for lack of words, they have a, 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 a lifestyle commitment attached to them. It's like the only way to really appreciate the difference between being a parent and not being a parent is but guess what happens once you became a parent? You don't get to back out afterwards. <laughs> so, um, I, I want you know. It, in that sense, it's it's something that that the more you want it to really work for you, the more you really have to be want, willing to work that. And being working that makes making you know, choices about how you devote your time and energy. You can't you can't unless you're some sort of prodigy. You can't master everything in your life. Um, and I think having respect for the fact that there isn't just one way to do things means recognizing that you can't therefore really know every way. You can know the way that you're doing it, and you can know how the way you're doing it interacts with those other ways, but you can't know those other ways on their own terms. Um, and that's, you know, it does, it, that's, that's sometimes uncomfortable because we would like to sample from everything and then pick, um, but you don't get to live life that way. You don't get to like try, it's like, you even something as simple as being married or not being married, you don't get to sample being married and then go back to not being married. 
because never having been married and having been married and having your marriage end is not the same thing. Right, so there are irreversible choices of commitment to time, energy. And the Hizbainu's practice that the Tanya is featured on, the more you want it to work, requires more of an investment. Okay. And one other point about that, this is independent from custom and practice. In other words, this spiritual guidance is independent from like which text of the Siddur you dive in, and whether you follow Ashkenazic rulings or Sephardic Ashkenazic rulings, um, or stuff like that. Because sometimes, because Chabad has like a, a um, that's where I'm looking for a, um, a tradition of, of customs like every Jewish community that should be seen as not as, as something that is connected to but still distinct from the spiritual guidance of practice in the Tanya um, this is something that all the Chabad Rebbeim said from the outset um, that these ideas aren't limited to which you know which version of Halacha you practice Fardi Ashkadazi or things like that okay yes do you have to accept your own limitations before you approach a second method, or it's just something that happens while you're doing it? It's kind of mutual reinforcement. The more you can accept your limitations, the more you can wholeheartedly do the second method. The more you really think that you know better and you can freestyle on your own, the less you'll be willing to really follow someone else's presentation of things. It's kind of like, um, you know, the more... The more you trust the mentor, the more the mentor can mentor you. The more the mentor mentors you, the more you tend to trust them. And that, hopefully that's a virtuous cycle. Basically, there's an important rule that almost everything, at least in the Chabad tradition, works in this kind of um, commensurate way that according to this is this, a mutual reinforcement. So the idea is never that you master one thing and then move on to the next thing. The idea is the degree that you have this, you can have that, then the degree you have that, that reinforces the first. And the analogy I like for this is walking. You don't move your right leg to the end of the room and then have your left leg catch up. You move your right leg, right leg a little bit, and then you move your left leg a little. That enables you to move your left leg further, which enables you to move your right leg further, and eventually both legs end up on the other side of the room. So prerequisite knowledge is bonus work that way. Accepting your limitations and taking um, someone else's presentation seriously work that way. Almost everything in the Chabad tradition of how you grow works that way. You never master and then move on to the next step. You make progress here, which enables you to make further progress there, which then makes you to make further additional progress in the first thing. Yeah. So I'll answer you. It is very important that you have one, for lack of words, master. Um, and really that, that's the appropriate word, master, in the sense of like, you know, like, a, like you know, you have a, a master learning a craft, learning a skill. So it's fine to discuss with anybody, but at the end of the day, you, you know, too many cooks spoil the broth. There needs to be one person that at the end of the day says, that's very nice, keep this out, that is for you. So, so consultation, guidance, perspective, um, there's no reason, like, but at the end of the day, yeah, if, if you, tr because you don't want to end up doing things that are going to, you know, conf be conflicting and, and, and cause you to, you know, go in circles. So that is true. And then in terms of what to start with, it really depends on the temperament of the person. It depends on the level of educational background of the person. Um, there's, it, it's very, very individual. What is an ideal thing for one person is like the worst thing for another person sometimes. Um, so there is no, you know, 
there is no key thing. Um, in fact, sometimes, um, and also the question of how much you should, how quickly you should progress and how much you should stay on one thing also becomes very individual. For some people, staying on the same discourse for five years is a good thing for them, and for some people, that's really bad for them, that they, you know, it's good to stay on one thing, but they just don't have the temperament for that, and, you know, they should be changing things on a, you know, more, you know, a few times a year, or whatever it is. I mean, and, and also a person isn't static, proofs change in life. So there's a lot of individualization, or even how to think about things. I once had a student um, who, I, I went through a little section of, um, and did like, that told him to think about this, and it was, and it was like very tailor-made to like, like his mindset and where his issues were and stuff like that. Um, and that's just, you know, that, that, that happened to me because I, I, was, I was, it was his teacher for two years and we had a lot of private conversation and I really got to know him. And I realized that there was a certain section of chassidus that if he really understood, and he understood it in this light and thought about it in this way, it would really resonate with him. But that was like, a, it was like an unusual, obscure thing, but it just happened to be because I knew him very well. And, you know, I, from me seeing from the outside, it seemed to have a positive effect. And there's also the risk, by the way, that you do the wrong thing, right? I mean, if it, you know, that's like, you know, it's like when this person starts learning to exer starts exercising regularly, some people do stupid things. Some people do think, things which are perfectly understandable why they did it. They didn't know any better, right? Sometimes a person's very excited and they, they, they push themselves too hard and they break something, they pull something, right? That can also happen. That's another reason why it's important to also have a living person. But that living person can also make mistakes. At the end of the day, there's no, like, safe, fail-proof way of doing it, but there's ways that are more likely to achieve some sort of real growth and there are ways that are kind of guaranteed to keep you running around in a circle. Yeah? What qualifies someone to be a master? Well, I think the best thing to do is that A, they care about you, B, they're humble, and they know more about it than you from their own personal experience. And that's the best you could ask for. So like, would I say I'm a master? No, but if someone who knows less than me and I care about them and I have the humility to tell them I don't know what I don't know and not to like do things just you know, arbitrarily and to hope that God helps, then you know, how can I not help? But at the same time, like, there's someone I go and speak to all the time about this, not all the time. I, mean, I wish it was all the time, but you know, as frequently as I can. Well, the goal actually here is to get, well, the goal here is that we want to get emotions, which is what we need to now go back into the text and explain. But that, that, that emotion is somehow connected to this real understanding, okay. which we have yet to explain how, what, what, that, but. How often, this is something that people should be doing all the time. Like, this is something that should be part of people's love, like a, a often done practice, how often? Well, that depends on the person. That depends on the person. There's these stories of these chassidim who would spend six hours a day under a talus. <laughs> so they spend six hours every day doing this. I don't think that most people are cut out for that, especially if you have little kids. Um, you know, uh, it, it really depends on the person. I and mean, one thing that I'll tell you is that um, if you look through the Rebbe's letters where people have problems and they write to the Rebbe, a common thing overwhelming times that the Rebbe would say a person should misbite it on this. And they'll, you know, whether it's on, on, on you know, on um, divine, the divine providence, um, on um, 
the fact that they have a marriage. But the Rebbe almost always uses his bonus to help people deal with their problems. Um, so then the question is, okay, like, what does that look like? You know, and what that looks like is very different. I mean, there's a certain classical, you know, picture of what that looks like in the shtetl with the chassid who sees the towels over his head and all that. But it doesn't have to look like that. Um, you know, people do mindless chores. Your mind is free when you're doing mindless chores. What are you using your mind for then? Right? It doesn't have, right? So then the question is, what works? So there's general principles we can discuss. But the idea is not to copy what someone else does, is figure out how to apply the general principles where it works for you. And um, um, uh, uh, someone who's mastered it can give some tips and some perspective. At the end of the day, they might say something that, that you know, on further examination doesn't really work for you. And someone who's had more experience gets to know it. It's not one size fits all. Um, you know, what's the right way of doing it? It's going to be very individual. But these are some general, general thoughts as to what, what we mean here with this one word, his bonus. Yes. So, yeah. So, okay. So the word for the Hebrew word for discourse in Chabad is called a mimer. The way a mimer is produced is that a Rebbe basically has a prophetic experience and puts it into words. So, uh, in the Chabad tradition, when when a Rebbe speaks, it's generally divided into two things. One is called a talk. In Hebrew, sikh, and it was called the discourse of Maimon. And the difference is, it's an interesting historical fact in a second, the difference is, is that the Maimon requires the Rebbe to in- alter their state of their mind so that they're more channeling a, a, a prophetic experience rather than explaining something as they understand it. So it's, it, it's much more like art in that sense. Um, in fact, the, there's a whole like, Ritual to, to, to help the Rebbe bring them to that state of mind. So um, that tends to be the ideal format, the ideal thing to use. Tanya, um, when the Alter Rebbe wrote Tanya, he was in that, he did it that way. Um, and what are called Maimaram or discourses or that. When the, one of the interesting things is tomorrow is the anniversary of the day the sixth Rebbe um, passed and then the Rebbe became the Rebbe. And one of the issues was is the Rebbe was, was for bragging all the time with the Chassidim, but he never said a mimer. Um, and, and eventually, um, the year later, when, when they wanted the Rebbe to officially accept being the Rebbe, um, one of the Chassidim, not so politely, in the middle of bragging, told the Rebbe, the talks are very nice, but we want to hear a discourse. Um, and then the Rebbe's whole mood, and you can hear there's a recording of it, like the, the whole tone of voice, everything changes. It's, it's a very different mindset. Um, when, the, when the fifth Chabad Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, which we know a lot about because there's more like diaries and stuff, when he would say a discourse, it was like a, there was, they had like a, a square of tables, you know, like when you have like a big shoulder, you make a square. Okay. And all of the, 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 the chassidim, all the people, would be standing around three sides of the square. And in the middle of the square was a single chair. And he would, and this what usually happened Friday night after the Kabbalah Shabbos prayer, before Marev, before the evening services. Um, and the, all of the, uh, all the people gathered, they would sing these very deep, these very deep songs. And then when they finished, the Rebbe Rishab would come in, the Rebbe would come in, and he'd go over to the chair, and he would sit down in the chair, 
and his son, who eventually succeeded him, he was standing opposite, just outside the table, and they would lock eyes. Was, there's people who wrote diaries of this. They would lock eyes, and he would wrap a handkerchief around his hand. This was another tradition, because they're having this kind of prophetic experience, so to keep them, so to speak, grounded in the world, they would do a physical thing to like, remind them that they're still in the body, and that was wrapping a handkerchief on around their hand. And then he would gaze into his son, his son would gaze back at him, and sometimes that gaze, would, and then it would just be silent. And that would last for anywhere from 30 seconds to a half hour. And then without warning, he would all of a sudden just start discourse, which more like flow out of him rather than saying. And then what was really weird was that his son would, would flow out, his son would start saying it also in an undertone. And have you ever heard two people speaking at once? It's very hard to hear. So the people sitting next, standing next to the, the the, the sixth Rebbe, the, Rebbe, the fifth Rebbe's son, they would, they would go like this again to be quiet because they couldn't hear because he was saying the same thing in undertone. But he wasn't saying after him. He was saying like with him. Um, and that, you know, the, the, it, it was, it's like a different thing altogether. Um, and tradition is that, you know, the, you would stand or you don't sit except the, the, except the Rebbe who's speaking it. And so those kinds of things, they're more of this channeling of this other experience of reality. And so you're entering into something totally new when you're, when you're doing it. Um, that being said, um, you know, on a certain level, anybody who has a certain level of mastery has presented the ideas clearly and thoughtfully, you could do the second method with. It's just that this has a level of um, possibility to really imprint something deep onto your mind. So that's, that's when he says, this what they have in English, cognates, contemplates, that's what we're talking about. That was an interesting historical fact. That was, to me, it's an interesting historical fact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you mentioned that the Hasidic spent six hours in Baldwin. Some. Some. Okay. The famous ones. Not all of them. <laughs> Not all of them. What's the balance between the whole, You're not doing what? Then you're not out in the world. Doing what? Elevating the How do you elevate the physical? By using it for the purpose. Such as? Purpose. Such as? Such as making an event to teach people about Torah. Okay. So, if the question is, should I spend six hours davening, or... And, and let all these people remain ignorant of the fact that it's Purim and not make sure that they hear the Megillah, then definitely that's where that goes. On the other hand, if I live in a place where everybody's hearing the Megillah, so this becomes an issue, this becomes an issue of, of understanding how these things work together and how situation, the situation changes things. Okay? When, when the communists took over in Russia, most of the Hasidim didn't have the time or the headspace to do this because they're too busy trying to build and maintain underground, you know, a mikvah for women when the, you know, under the threat of death. They were trying to make sure that children were learning olive phase. Very few people, while they're, like, risking their lives to make sure that, you know, people have basic necessities of Judaism also have the headspace to then do this. That's true. Yeah. What's the interaction between these two sides of Chabad? As we get later in Tanya, the altar ever ties these things together. Um, but I will just tell you one thing that the Rebbe said on a, um, he wrote actually, there was a conference in the 70s, I believe, on mysticism in Judaism. 
Um, and the Rebbe, I think, was invited to attend. He didn't attend because the Rebbe didn't do those kinds of things, but he did send um, a, uh, a letter. And the thing was that the, 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 in the Chabad tradition, the entire mystical or contemplative um, goal, ultimately, and you'll see this as we move just between chapters three and four, is to get a person to realize that the, the way of coming to know God ultimately is through physical action. Now, the, you think, okay, well, I already know that, so I don't need to do all the contemplations. But the fact is that you, if you really examine how you live your life, and I don't mean this as a criticism of you personally, but as of all of us, our lives don't actually look like that. Right? So the, 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 if the goal of the contemplation is to achieve some kind of spiritual enlightenment, then there's more of a tension here. But if the goal of that so-called enlightenment is to realize that the ultimate and the truest form of knowing God is actually doing a mitzvah, but you have to be in a different mindset to really appreciate that and really have that govern your life, as we're going to learn this chapter, next chapter, then that can, you know, that, that, that requires that kind of contemplation. Now, does that mean, therefore, I should sacrifice somebody else's hearing shofar or shaking rulev or having matzah um, or even just knowing that there's an address that they can come to and speak to about basic Jewish matters? so that I can have that deep appreciation? The answer is no. On the other hand, if I completely ignore that, then I'll lose my appreciation of it as well, and then we'll have two people drowning, and that's not good either. And so you're right, there is a lot of, and a lot of Hasidic discourses deal with that issue. But, but the, 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 the goal is not what you achieve in some sort of mental enlightenment type of thing, but how that alters the way you then live and interact with the physical mitzvahs, which comes in this section, the topic of chapter four. Okay, so much for like an introduction to stuff. We've used most of class. Okay. Um, okay, we only have a few minutes left. So, um, which, I'll tell you one other important thing. In the Chabad tradition, there has always been a tremendous amount of scorn heaped on people who feel that because they engage in these practices, somehow they're superior to everyone else. Um, there's all sorts of not nice things that were said about, and can be said about such people. Um, and the idea being is that one of the dangers in engaging in such an activity, because it's hard, because it requires, requires dedication, is that you know, the, more, the more serious practitioners tend to be fewer, right? it tends to be there's this, there's this you know, cut off. Like most things in life, that you know, the, you know, people that play piano are the minority, people that can play the piano well are the minority of those, people that can play the piano on an expert level are the minority of those, right? And so if, I'm re if I do this and I'm really good at it and it's actually affecting me, right? There is an unfortunate byproduct is that a person looks around and says, I'm superior to everyone else. Um, and so one of the dangers of doing his business, which is discussed in Chassidus at great length, is how do you actually do this in a serious way without it becoming the very source of your arrogance? Okay. Um, so one of, the, one of the answers to that is when a person, one, one of the answers is when a person realizes 
that a small child's sincerity when they do a mitzvah or a, a non-religious Jew's sincerity when they do a mitzvah may in fact be a greater appreciation of that mitzvah than what you're achieving and keeping that always in perspective. That you might need to do all these practices, but the child maybe really has it without that. Or this person who never, never heard of uh, Pesach and the first time he comes to a Seder, he has a, he maybe not be, have the words for it, but he has a greater sense, of, sense of, of how important it is to participate in the Seder and to do these activities than you'll ever achieve with all of your great contemplation. So realizing that contemplation is a way for a person to take control and grow, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're achieving something more than what a simple person might have or a child might have on their own. Um, and that's a theme that the, 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 the Chabad Rebbe would talk about a lot. The Rebbe would talk about that a, a tremendous amount, uh, the importance of having a humility to that you with all of your hisboinunus may not even be coming close to um, the appreciation of, of, of God that a, that a small child has when they just do a simple everyday mitzvah, they put a coin in the pushka, or when a person walks in the Chabad house and doesn't know anything, but they genuinely... So the advantage of this is that you have control of it, you can grow you from that, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're on some sort of higher level. Um, and some of the, the greatest chassidim who did spend six hours, seven hours a day doing this, one of the, the, the people's names who got preserved throughout history were the people who that w had that same kind of tremendous respect and deference to the sincerity of children and simple people and the ones who thought they were better than everyone else. People tended to forget their names as history moves on because like normally thought very highly of them. Um, so I'll just tell you one quick story. Um, there was a famous chassid named Itcha the Masmid. Masmid means the diligent one and Itcha is a nickname for Yitzchak. His actual name was Rabbi Yitzchak Horowitz, but he was known as Itcha the Masmid because Chassidim tend to be very familiar with each other. He was very diligent. He used to study and contemplate for usually upwards of 18 hours a day. Um, it's a lot, yes. Anyway, so at one point he had a young child staying in his house, and um, he so he made sure to figure out what the child liked, and the child liked chalva. You know, chalva? Yes. And so the, the, he would not start his whole, you know, his bainus process, which would take hours and hours and hours of the day, until he made sure that not only the child had breakfast, but he also had a piece of chalva as a treat for the day. Because the child's experience of reality is no less real than his own and what he achieves. And that was always the sign that Chassidim would use to tell whether a person is, is twisting this into building a... a, a, a platform to correct themselves as an idol on the top, or this is actually bringing them to a greater awareness of Hashem in a real way. Mm -hmm. So, we have a few minutes, I thought I'd add that point as well. Yeah? Yes. It could. It could. But that, the, the altar was going to talk about it. It could it depends what you mean. There's an element that it for sure will, and there's an element that, are, that is only a possibility. Um, because one element of the way we, of, 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 of experiencing things is how we contextualize what we're doing, and that definitely will change. There's another which is the more know, direct experience of things, like a blind person suddenly being able to see. And that, you may be able to experience things that you previously could not experience in the mitzvah, but you, that may or may not happen, and in fact, Dr. goes on to question whether that is, should even be an objective. 
But the, the first thing about recontextualizes what you're doing, and therefore changes the experience that way, that's for sure. All right. So tomorrow we will actually learn some Tanya about how his vitamin is supposed to bring us to loving and fearing Hashem, which is an important thing. Thank you. Thank you.